Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. We are nearing the end. We are in chapter 7 this morning, verses 7 through 12. Many of you are familiar with the uh, wildly popular five love languages from some years ago. It's not uh, as prevalent today uh, as it once was, but it's still out there and people still use it. Uh, The idea of the five love languages was that uh, we receive love and therefore give love in different ways. And the more we can understand how we give and receive love, the better at that we will be. And so one of those five love languages is gifts. That is, some people express their love by giving gifts to others. And as a result, that is the way they receive love as well. The size or the value of the gift is not all that matters, but that someone was thinking of you and expressing their thoughts towards you through a gift. Now, we've, been, we've all been on both sides of that equation. We've all been given gifts, and we have all received gifts. Special events, birthdays, anniversaries, or just because someone appreciates you. Some of these gifts have been bad gifts. So when you receive them, you say something like, oh, you shouldn't have. And you mean it. You really wish they wouldn't have. Um, Sometimes someone just doesn't know you. They don't know what you like or dislike. And so in spite of their best intentions, they give you something, but it's really not the greatest gift I still remember what I consider to be one of the worst gifts I've ever received. I was probably about 10 years old. I really don't remember the age. I just know that I was pre-teenage. And my grandparents, my grandmother and grandfather, gave me for Christmas a softball. Now, a 10 or 12-year-old boy has no use for a softball. I would have been happy to receive a baseball. That would have been wonderful because I played baseball. But boys don't play softball. You have to wait till you're a man and you're in church league before you care anything about softball. But at the age of 10, that was a useless gift to me. My grandparents were well-intentioned. They just didn't know what I liked or did not like. Sometimes gifts are bad on purpose. That is, we have the white elephant gifts around Christmas time. Sometimes they go by other names. And gag gifts that we give people, re-gifting something for a Christmas present that we didn't want in the first place. We've, of course, also received good or even great gifts through the years. Perhaps it was because they were large in value or sentimental in nature, and we still remember them and that person who thought enough of us to give us that tremendous gift I could detail some of the good gifts I've been given through the years, but I'm not going to because I don't want to give you the impression that I want you to give me a gift. That's not the point of this sermon. My point is that in this text today, we discover that it reminds us that God gives good gifts to his children. 
That is our title, Good Gifts from God. Now, when we read it, you're going to think at first that it is a section on prayer, and it is, and we've dealt with prayer already in this sermon, and yet Jesus comes back to it again. But there is more here than just our prayers, and in fact, our prayers are not the emphasis, which is why my title is about the fact that God is a good and gracious God who gives his children good gifts. Now, along the way in this sermon, there have been very difficult commands. There have been hard sayings from Jesus. I have said on multiple occasions that this passage is very, very difficult to apply to our lives. It's not really been overly difficult to interpret in most places, but it is very difficult to apply. And yet now we come to a passage of Scripture that is extremely encouraging. In fact, some people say this is one of the most encouraging passages, not just in the sermon, but in the entire Bible. And we need encouragement. And that is why we find this text here. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who, rece who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one to who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, I need to begin this morning by talking about the problems of unanswered prayers. I begin with that because we are tempted to look at these verses, especially verses 7 and 8, and conclude that they apply to any and everything that we want. And what a grand promise that would be. All you got to do is ask. Doesn't matter what it is. And you will receive it. All you got to do is seek. And it doesn't matter what it is. You'll find it. And on and on. Wouldn't that be a wonderful promise? And if that were the case, there would be no need for sermons on prayer. There would be no need for Wednesday night discussions about what prayer is all about because all of us would be very diligent in our prayer life if all we had to do is ask God and it will be given to us. There would be no physical ailments. No one would be homesick this morning. There would be no lost loved ones. There would be no financial woes. Just ask God and you will get what you desire. And yet there's not a one of us here that has that experience that in our own life and in our own prayer life. And therefore, we must acknowledge that when Jesus makes this statement, it is not a blank check to be filled out by us, if you still remember how to fill out a check. It's not a blank check to be filled out by us for whatever we want, regardless. And as a result, we must acknowledge that sometimes our prayer life is painful. 
We have asked for things that we have not received. We have sought things from God that seemingly have gone unnoticed or even unanswered. And this often leads to frustration or even discouragement, sometimes to the point that we give up on prayer altogether. And some of you might be there this morning. And so you hear these verses, verses 7 and 8, and you are immediately skeptical because you say, but I have asked and I have not received. I have sought the Lord on a matter, and yet I have not found what I wanted to find. I have knocked, and things have just not been open for me. Well, there might be some reasons for that, and so I want to talk about that first, some problems with unanswered prayers. The first problem might be that you have no relationship. That is, you have no relationship with God. You are not a believer. The Bible does not promise that God hears the prayers of everyone and will answer those prayers. There is a wildly held belief that God is obligated to hear and to heed no matter what. But Proverbs 15 and verse 9 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. Proverbs chapter 1 verses 28 and 29 says, Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. The idea that God must hear the prayers of unbelievers is not biblical. And when I say God does not hear, I do not mean that somehow his ears are stopped and he can't physically hear. I simply mean he is under no obligation to answer the prayers of, a, of, a, of an individual who is not a child of his. And therefore, you must have a relationship with God before you can apply these verses. Remember, this Sermon on the Mount, though, though preached to a large crowd on the hillside, was primarily addressed to his disciples, not the 12, but the broader meaning of disciples, that is, those who were following Jesus. And so that is a prerequisite to answered prayers. You must have a relationship with God. And if you have no relationship, then you are not in a position to expect God to answer your prayers. A second potentially, potential problem with unanswered prayers is no repentance. By that, I mean that as a believer, you have sin in your life, and I don't mean that you just sinned, but I mean that you have known sin, that you've been convicted of by God, and yet you have not repented of that sin. And if we continue to hang on to unconfessed and unrepented sin, we have no assurance from God's word that he will respond to our pleas. Again, I appeal to Proverbs, this time chapter 28. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law... Even his prayer is an abomination. In Psalm 66 and verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Again, this does not mean that you have to be perfect. No one is saying that you must be sinless in order to have your prayers heard and answered by God. We all sin and come short of the glory of God. But what I'm referring to is a person who knows there is sin in his or her life They've been convicted of that sin, and yet because they love that sin, they continue to revel in it rather than repent from it. 
And so if God is dealing with you about a particular sin and you are refusing to confess and forsake it, then you have no reason to come to verses 7 and 8 and think that God is going to give you what you ask for. You must first repent. And no repentance means there is an issue with your unanswered prayers. Thirdly, I would say that there might be the fact that there is no request. That is, James tells us you have not because you ask not. Now, I know you probably are thinking, well, that's not the reason that applies to me because I did pray. That's the whole point that we're dealing with this morning. I have prayed, and yet I've not been uh, given an answer to that prayer. But if I might paraphrase James just a little bit, I'm not distorting what he said. I think I'm further applying it. James basically said, you have not because you do not ask continually. That is, it's a continuous action when James says that. And there are numerous places in the Bible that tell us we must pray consistently and even continually. Paul often used phrases like, I cease not to pray for you. That does not mean that he was praying 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But it means that prayer was on his mind on a regular basis and he was offering up requests on behalf of others on a continual basis. Jesus, in the parallel passage to what we're looking at this morning in Luke's gospel, prefaces these statements with a parable. A parable about a man who has received a traveling friend into his home late at night But having not expected him, did not have anything to feed him. Hospitality was very important in that culture, and therefore it was his responsibility to provide for his traveling guests. But he didn't have anything, and so he went next door to a friend, knocked on that friend's door, and asked that friend if he could borrow something to eat for his traveling companion. The friend and his family, however, were already in bed, and they did not want to be bothered and to get up. And so they refused the request. But the man kept knocking. And because of his persistence, Jesus says, the neighbor finally got up and gave the neighbor what he needed to to feed his traveling companion. Now that is not to say that God will finally give you what you want if you pester him enough. That's not the point of the parable. It is, however, the point that we are to persist in prayer, and that is a recurring theme throughout the New Testament. Persistence until we get an answer from God, whether that answer is a yes or a no. And in this way, our faith is increased, our patience is learned, and once we get what we desire from the Lord, it is more greatly appreciated. Yet, of course, you know we live in an instant society, We want everything now. We live in a fast food world where we expect everything quickly, and if we have to wait a mere few minutes for something, we get upset. And we have to be very careful that that mentality does not flow over into our prayer life. In verse 7, these are imperatives. That is, they are commands. Ask, seek, and knock. But in verse 8... They are not imperatives, rather they are uh, participles, which means they can be translated, the one who keeps on asking, the one who keeps on seeking, and the one who keeps on knocking, a continuous action. So we have to ask, and if we do not ask, we certainly will not receive. 
And then finally, and there are many more that we could talk about, but I don't want to spend all of our time here. The fourth one I want to mention, the problem of unanswered prayer, is no right. And by that I simply mean I'm moving forward with what James says. He says, you have not because you ask not, but then when you do ask, you ask amiss. That is, you ask for wrong motives to be used on your own selfish desires. So there certainly is a a place for us asking, but asking for the wrong reasons. And as a result, we do not get what we ask for. We are asking for things merely to please ourselves. But I remind you of what we've already talked about in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, not my kingdom, not my will, but God's kingdom and God's will. And when we learn to focus our prayers more on the kingdom of God and his will for our lives, that is when we are going to discover that our prayers are more answered because we are now praying more in accord with the will of God. Again, there are other things we could talk about. We could talk about a lack of faith. Again, James clues us into that. He says, let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For if he wavers, it's like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he will receive anything from the Lord. So we have to ask in faith. I could also talk about the fact that at times we simply pray for things that are not good for us. And a good and gracious God knows what is good for us. So at times, he does not give us what we ask for because it is not good for us. I mean, even that great theologian Garth Brooks knew that, right? Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers because we realize in hindsight that we didn't need, nor would it have been good for us to get the very things that we wanted. So in verses 7 and 8, is Jesus saying, that every prayer we pray will be answered in the affirmative, and the answer is no. There are many other issues we need to deal with, as we've done, by looking at other scriptures. But we do want to talk, secondly, about the promise of answered prayers, because clearly this is a promise, and the promise is that our prayers will be answered, again, if they are uh, the appropriate prayers. And so first of all, I want to look at this promise in context. What are we to ask for? What are we to seek? And what are we to knock for? We've already said that this cannot be interpreted as a blank check to get anything we want. So what exactly is he promising? Well, again, I've encouraged you often that we always have to look at verses in context. That is why it is better to preach through a book of the Bible or a section of the Bible as we're doing now rather than pulling verses out one by one. That's why we have to be careful when we memorize verses. Nothing wrong with memorizing verses, but you have to be careful that you understand the verse you're memorizing in its context. Otherwise, you will misinterpret and ultimately misapply it. So obviously, these verses are in the larger context of the Sermon on the Mount. A sermon that I've already said was addressed primarily to his disciples. Thus, its promises and its commands, by and large, are applicable only for believers. So let me give you a brief summary. We began with the Beatitudes, 
And we saw how difficult those were. In fact, difficult is not even a strong enough term. We saw how impossible those were to live and follow on our own. The standards were set so high that none of us could achieve it. And then we looked at Jesus' interpretation of the law. Six examples that he gave there. And we saw the same thing. The Pharisees were very proficient at keeping the law outwardly, but Jesus gave those examples and said, it's not just about keeping the law outwardly, but it is about the matter of the heart. From practicing the law, we move to a discussion about religious deeds. You remember those three things? Prayer, almsgiving, and I can't remember the other one at the moment, but you remember those three things, even if I don't. And so we looked at those three things, and once again, we saw the same thing, how difficult they were to actually achieve. Because even there, we discovered that we could do those religious deeds and yet do them with wrong hearts and motives, and therefore, they were not religious devotions at all. And then chapter 6 concluded with several sections on the believer's relationship to material world. And here we were confronted with selfishness and our desire for things rather than for God. Perhaps one of the most difficult sections of this sermon was what we looked at last week. Judge not. And yet he goes on to say that we must be discerning. So how do we find that line between being discerning, between what is right and wrong, truth and false, and yet not being judgmental and overly critical of other people? All of these things would lead us to the conclusion, who is sufficient for these things? In other words, who among us could ever hope to come anywhere close to actually following the things that Jesus says in this sermon, let alone the rest of the Bible? There are some who claim that they can accurately follow the teachings of Christ, but an examination faithfully and truthfully and honestly of this Sermon on the Mount tells us that we can't do it. Is the answer then to give up, admit that we can't do it, and not even try? Of course not. The answer is found in the verses that we are looking at this morning. This promise in its context, that is in the Sermon on the Mount, has led us to the promise in conclusion, not the conclusion of my sermon just yet, but what I mean by that is what does this promise mean? Clearly, these verses are not referring to material things. We've already talked about that. We've already seen that we're supposed to be seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So we can't come to these verses and now say, well, God's promised to give me whatever I want. And so we have to come to a conclusion. And I think the conclusion is the promise in its context, the promise in its conclusion is that Jesus is telling us to pray for the very things that we've been talking about in this sermon. Are you struggling with any of the issues we've dealt with? Or may I say it, are you struggling with all of the issues we've dealt with? Then ask God about it. Seek God for the strength and the grace to be obedient to the commands that he has given us here. That is what we are talking about here. We all need a little encouragement from time to time. I told you at the very beginning that some people view these, these verses as some of the most encouraging in all the Bible, and all of us need that. Someone to come alongside us from time to time and say, you're doing well. 
You're making progress. You may not be there yet, but I can see growth in your life. It's why life coaching or the other terms that are used for that is so popular these days. Because people want someone else to come alongside them and help them along the way. And God knows that you can't do this on your own. God knows that you can't apply this sermon without his help. You were never meant to. Instead, this sermon, and I mean the Sermon on the Mount, not my sermon, but the Sermon on the Mount was meant to drive you to the fact that I can't do this on my own, and therefore I need help, and that help is found in God. And here we find that that help is promised. And that is why this section is some of the most encouraging, not only in this sermon, but in all of the Bible. Now, you can still choose to be stubborn if you want, and try to do this alone, and you will continue to fail. Or you can ask, seek, and knock, and encourage, and be encouraged by the fact that God will answer your prayers for the strength and the guidance you need to live out this Sermon on the Mount. Because otherwise, you simply cannot do it. So we can be assured of the answers when we keep on asking for the right things, when we keep on seeking and when we keep on knocking, this is the confidence, John says, that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And everything we've dealt with in the Sermon on the Mount is the will of God. And so if you're asking and seeking and knocking for something that we've discussed in this sermon, then you can have the confidence to know that God will answer that prayer because you are asking in the will of God. So the more we seek his kingdom and the more we seek his righteousness, the more it changes our prayer life to be in accordance with the will of God, and then we will see our prayers answered. Now, I do want to conclude with our third point, and it is the point of answered prayers. In other words, why would God do this? Why would God give us this encouragement? Why would God give us these promises? Well, before I answer that, let me back up just a little bit and ask you, what is your view of God? When you think of God, how do you perceive him? Perhaps you've never thought about it, but a close look at your prayer life will tell a lot about your view of God. And your view of God will determine your prayer life. So what is your view of God? Is your God a cosmic Santa Claus that is just there to answer your every request, to give you anything you want as long as it is relatively good? And by good, I do not mean by God's standards, but as long as it is good by your standards. If that's your view of God, then you probably interpret these verses to mean that you can ask for whatever you want and God has promised to give it to you, and yet you will find disappointment in that belief. Maybe you see God as a strict judge who sits up on his throne anxiously awaiting for you to mess up or sin. And once you do, he pounces on you like a lion and doesn't let go of you until you have paid all of the consequences. This view of God leaves little room for grace or even love. And if that's your view of God, then you're probably not asking him for much of anything because you don't think you're worthy and that God won't give you anything. You know God gives good gifts to others, but because of your view of God, 
you've determined that he won't give good gifts to you. Or perhaps your view of God is the God who created the universe and then just sort of takes a hands-off approach to the running of the universe and ultimately to the running of your life. He doesn't really get involved in the day-to-day affairs of his people. He's detached and somewhat distant and therefore is really not concerned. And once again, you're not going to ask for anything if that is your view of God. Because your belief already is he really doesn't care and therefore he's not going to answer. Now, we would probably readily admit that these views of God are distorted and not the God of the Bible, but nevertheless, they do creep into our minds even as Christians and ultimately then affect our prayer life. But we need to see here that the point of answered prayer is that it is based on God's character and God's character, among other things, is love that God loves you. And that is the illustration. Jesus uses another illustration to teach us that God desires to give us good gifts because he loves us. The illustration is the equating of him as the heavenly father with us as earthly fathers and how we treat our children. He says, what kind of father would give a child a stone when they ask for bread? Now he's going to go on and talk about fish and you understand that the staple Galilean diet was bread and fish. That's what they ate most of the time. So once again, Jesus takes some well-known commodities and he applies them to our spiritual lives. One of the primary responsibilities of a father, of course, is to provide for his children. We've already seen that in chapter six. That is, we don't have to worry about these things because we have a heavenly father who will provide for us. And I said back then that my children don't worry about their next meal because that's my responsibility to provide for them. However, they're now out of the house, so that has changed. But when they were in the house, they didn't worry about those things. And so we have another illustration here of a father who certainly is loving toward his children. And I realize there are exceptions to that. But generally speaking, a father loves his children. So would a loving father, when asked for bread, that is a staple of life, give his child not only not bread, but something that would in fact be harmful? I mean, any parent knows the special relationship between a parent and a child. I mean, I'm not sure, well, I am sure, I don't completely understand what love is. I don't think any of us do. But when that first child comes along, it grows. I mean, there is a greater understanding of what love is when that first child comes along. Because I know that I would do anything within my power to make sure my children had what they needed. Not everything they want, but I would do whatever is necessary to make sure my children had what they needed to live a contented and successful life. But that also means that sometimes I tell my children no. Sometimes they ask for something that I ultimately know is not for their good, that it might be overindulgent and it might spoil them. That's what grandparents are for, but it's still not good. And so sometimes we say no to children because we know that it is not ultimately for their benefit, but that doesn't mean we don't love them. In fact, it does mean that we love them. We give them what they need and we tell them no to what is not good for them 
both flowing out of the fact that we love them. It's not that we don't want them to have fun in life or have things in life. It's that we want them to be safe and productive in life. And so we not only give them what they need, but we try to protect them from what they don't need. And Jesus says that's the same way God reacts to us or treats us. He answers our prayers because of his character. He is a God who loves us. And he answers our prayers because we are basking in God's generosity. God is a generous God who wants to give his children these things. And so he takes this illustration of natural love. If you, being evil, what he means there is that you're sinful. That is that every human father is also a sinful father. We don't always know what's best. We don't always do what's right. And yet, even though we're far from perfect, we know how to give good gifts to our children. Therefore, how much more, a comparison, how much more will your heavenly father, who is not sinful, who is not evil, who is all-knowing and has all the resources in the world, how much more will he give good gifts to his children who ask him? I mean, do you see how unrealistic and unra- or irrational it is to think that God's not going to give me what I need? I mean, we keep telling ourselves that God must not love us. You've said that. If God didn't answer this prayer, does God really love me? If God didn't give me this, maybe it's because he doesn't love me. And yet all of that is irrational because God has said over and over again that he does love us and that he's a generous God who wants to give us good things. He's not going to spoil us. He's not going to overindulge us, but he is a generous God who desires to bless his children. Now, verse 12, we haven't talked about that yet. You're familiar with that. It's another one of the sayings from this sermon that is well known, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It is the golden rule as it's come to be known. Ever thought about why it's called the golden rule? Well, some say it's because of an emperor in the third century who was not a Christian, but who liked the saying so much that he had it engraved in his chambers in gold. And as a result, it came to be called the golden rule. Other commentators say, no, that's just a, just a myth. And we really don't know where it came from. But we do know it's a common phrase, even going beyond Christianity. The state of Kentucky, if you have to take a driver's course, the last thing they tell you, I didn't take the course, I just read this. The last thing they tell you is treat other drivers as you would have them treat you. A paraphrase of this very statement. It's a general maxim for relationships. It's very difficult to figure out how it goes with what we've already talked about or, how it, or if it goes with what follows. That's why some of your Bibles may lump this with what we're going to talk about next week. Some of your Bibles have it with what we're talking about today. Some of it have verse 12 as a standalone because they don't know where it goes. It's difficult to, to tie it in to what precedes or follows, but certainly what it is here is a general maxim for how to live our lives as it pertains to our relationships with other people. And that flows from our relationship with God. Because we are a child of God, if indeed you are, then we are to treat others as we would desire to be treated. So I ask you again, what is your view of God? 
because your view of God plays a huge role in your prayer life. Is he an angry deity waiting to punish you? Is he a distant God who simply does not care? Is he a stingy father who hardly listens to your needs? Or is he a loving, gracious, generous God who gives good gifts to his children when they ask, seek, and knock according to his will? Let me pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a good God. Forgive us for the times when we question that. Forgive us for the times when we are so focused on something we did not get that we begin to question your very character. And yet you remind us all the time that you are a God of love. And because you love, you are a gracious and generous God to your children. Again, that doesn't mean that you give us everything we want. It certainly doesn't mean that you overindulge us. But it does mean that you want what is our good and what will serve to help us follow you more faithfully that you might be glorified. So thank you for reminding us of these things today. Rearrange our thoughts to remember that you are a good and gracious God who gives good gifts to his children. Is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. Paul says in Romans chapter eight, he who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him graciously or freely give us all things? You're dismissed.